thanks so much for letting me be here with you and be a part of your weekend. You be seated. If uh, I get to I get to open the Bible today, and um, I take that very seriously. So if you're the type that likes to follow along an actual Bible, Acts chapter 8, we're going to get there. Or I've created slides to make it very easy to follow along, all right? But if you like to follow along an actual Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 um, in just a second. For those of you who don't know me, this is all I do. I travel around and speak. I've had the amazing privilege of of, of being mentored by a pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training, so my stuff tends to come from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me, because I can see through all that stuff. Um, this is all I do for living that, but I do live for the poor and the afflicted. And so we live with the conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So um, what we've done is we've taken on three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats, right? So now the way we support that is through a resource table at the back. So immediately afterwards, there's a table at the back with my teachings on it in audio and video. Um, there's several there's several brand new things. I mean, it's been a few years since I've been at Port City, so there's a lot of new stuff. But there's four specifically from last year alone. I did I did a thing on the book of Revelation because I got embarrassed by what people were saying about it. Um, I did a, a, a new thing on, the, on faith um, and uncertainty. And then, of course, in the COVID shutdowns, I was interviewed all over the, the place by people like Mark Verghese and, and Rob Buckingham and Chris Mulhare and Dustin Bell and people like that. And when, by the time we got done with all of that, um, to be live online, um, we had, I don't know, 800 minutes worth of material. And so what we did is we, we uh, cut it and copied it and pasted it by topic. And so you could pick that up and just choose the topic you want. Now, the reason I say all that is what we make from that we give away. So on your way out today, if you come by, let me put something in your hands that will change the way you look at God. And in so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, close, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids. That's a pretty good thing. The only thing I would ask you to do is if you could do me a favor. If you have zero intention of getting anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time, okay? But if you know before I leave today, I'm going to grab something, if you could do that first, right? So if you could buy first and chat second, that would be awesome. The reason is, is because i got to pack it up, and, um, and I've got to make a flight just after lunch, okay? So I'm gonna, i got to pack it up, get a sandwich, and then catch a plane, right? So if you could help me do that sooner rather than later, that would be... That would, that would be just a fantastic uh, sort of thing. All right, so anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so if you're, the, if you're like me, I have less anxiety if I know what's coming, okay? So here's what's going to happen. Roughly 14 minutes worth of me explaining what happened. And then another probably 15 to 20 minutes worth of exploring what that means for us. The, the, the second most popular question I got asked in the COVID shutdowns was, where does the church go from here? What's the church going to look like in 2021 and beyond? And there's several answers to that. Here's one of those answers. And I'll, I'll just be as blunt as I can. Um, if you're going to be a part of where the church is going and be happy about it, you're going to have to get on board with what we're talking about today, all right? Because this, this is where it's going. And I can make a case, and I think I will make a case effectively, that this is where Jesus wanted it to go all along. So let's start with a true story that will serve as an imagination reference for what we're talking about. 
This is a true story from the 80s. Um, an American came to Australia. Now, Americans are enamored with Australian culture. We love it. We love it, largely because of Crocodile Dundee and because of a steakhouse called Outback Steakhouse. So anytime an American comes to Australia for the first time, never the second time, nobody makes this mistake twice, but when you come to Australia for the first time as an American, the first thing you want to see is the Outback. And I try to explain to my American friends, you don't want to see the Outback. There's nothing there. Just fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town. That is the Outback for 3,000 miles. But Americans just do that. Americans love Australian culture. I, I'll tell you, like, for instance, an American has never had a pavlova. We've never heard of pavlova. That, it does not exist there. So if you go to America and you start a pavlova shop, you will go broke. But if you call it the Great Aussie Pie, you'll make millions. Why? Because Americans love Australian culture. The, the thing that shocks us is we can't get our head around the sheer size of things. So, so, so for instance, my pastor is an old cattleman. And the cattle property he ran when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Well, to an American, that's the state of Connecticut. That's an entire state. We don't have anything like that. And so the American couldn't believe the size of the thing. And he asked the farmer, he said, where, where do you put, where are the fences around your property? And he said, bro, you can't put a fence around 70 miles by 30 miles. You can't, can't really do that. It would cost to take an act of Congress to like build the wall. Or so you can't, can't really do that. He said, but what, what you do is, is you have a surveyor come in and that surveyor puts strategic wells down certain parts of your paddocks, and that creates water sources. And once the cows know where the water source is, they won't vary too far from the water source because they know they'll die. And he said, mate, mate, if you got proper wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to Jesus. Jesus steps into a world of the most fence-based ministry ever. 613 rules. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Jesus says, enough of that. We're going to go with a different paradigm. And he moved the whole thing from 613 fences to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. And you could do something more profound than being right about one verse in the Bible. You can actually fulfill scripture, which is a whole nother thing, which leads me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a group of people who were profoundly affected by Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. That, that, that's is more than that. Jesus isn't someone to believe in. Jesus is someone to be so profoundly connected to that it fundamentally shifts the way you see your whole world, right? And so here's the book of Acts in 20 seconds. A group of people started doing amazing things, and then they were persecuted for doing the amazing things because those amazing things didn't fit within the fences. And then they overcame that, and then they got persecuted, and then they, 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 they overcame that, and then they did more amazing things, and then they got persecuted, um, and then they overcame that, and then they did more amazing things, and then they got persecuted, and then, and then they overcame that. And then one of their friends, a guy named Stephen, gets murdered. Now, when Stephen gets murdered, it changes everything because, look, you could do whatever you want to do, but you kill one of my friends, we're going to take our show on the road until you cool off, right? And that's about what happened. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth, and in Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem until their mate gets killed. And when their mate gets killed, they're like, listen, we're going to let you all chill out for a little while. We're taking this act to Samaria. So they go to Samaria, and they start doing such amazing things 
that people are offering them money for the presence of God. They think it's for sale. It's a whole, it's a very elemental way of looking at things. And so then there's this ridiculous encounter with a guy named Philip and another man who's simply known as the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I want to explore this story and see where it takes us. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem from Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading from Isaiah. Now I, I, this story makes no sense. Let me see if I could summarize it in 10 seconds. There's a guy that rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. All right, that's 3,853 kilometers according to Google Maps, okay? Let, let, me get, let me put an Australian number on that. That's riding a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turning right and going to, to Townsville. That's how far this guy, which leads to all kinds of questions like, why would a guy ride from Ethiopia to Jerusalem on a horse clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? Why did Isaiah mean anything to him? Does he even know the language to read it? What's going on there? And out of all the scrolls that were available, why Isaiah? Why do you have this guy riding a horse for 3,853 kilometers, clutching the scroll of a prophet that really isn't speaking about anything in Ethiopia? That's strange. It gets stranger. Let's keep going. And the Spirit said to Philip, well, go over and join him. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and said, well, do you even understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before his shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from him. And the eunuch said to Philip. Well who's this guy talking about? Does the prophet say this about himself? Or someone else? Like his understanding is so elemental. He's like. I don't even know who this guy's talking about, but I'm compelled because he's talking about a God that's not an existent object sitting above creation, but rather an insistent thing willing to engage the brokenness of the story in order to make, yep, there we go, in order to make a better story. And this is compelling. So watch, watch what Philip does. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Hey, look, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Uh, And and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now, what a weird story. I have questions. And if you were paying attention as I read that story, you should have questions too. So I'm going to let you in on my questions to see if they identify with your questions. Like, one, is there too much information in this passage? Like, why, why do we need to know that he's a eunuch? Why is that important? And why five times in the passage does Luke continually point out this guy's missing part of his anatomy? Do we need to know that? And if you're the eunuch, do you want everybody knowing that? Like, I could picture him confronting Luke right now in heaven. Going, hey, what were you thinking, bro? Telling the whole world I'm missing part of my anatomy? Like, that's embarrassing. And you know Willard can't read over that and just let it go. He's going to have to point it out. 
But the truth of it is, is the passage five times points it out. Oh, by the way, this guy, this eunuch, hey, this guy, if I haven't mentioned it yet, he's a eunuch. Oh, by the way, you need to know this guy's a foreigner and he's a eunuch. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. If you don't understand, this guy's a eunuch. Now, I have all kinds, why include, like Luke had tons of stories to include in the book of Acts. Why include this story? Why is the story even important? Why is he clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? What's going on there? What's going on about that? Why is that important? Why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem in the first place? That's weird. This story's weird. Next slide. And then he says, is there any reason I can't be baptized? And so that's the question we have to wrestle with. Like, to Philip, was there a reason he can't be baptized? We're going to find out yes in just a second. But the question this passage, I think, is confronting us with the most is this. Are we going to be a fence-based or a well-based church? Are we going to be a fence-based church? Or a well-based church. Because here's the truth of it. There was a reason the unit could not be baptized. There was a reason. And that reason was clearly written in the Bible. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Here's what it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter in the assembly of the Lord. In other words, God does not accept eunuchs. So in this passage, you have a eunuch that wants to be accepted by God. But there's a verse. And that verse says, God doesn't accept eunuchs. Can you see where the tension in the passage comes from? Can you see why Luke's trying to point out something to us here? Deuteronomy 23, gets Moses gets on a roll here. And he starts excluding lots of people. He goes, oh, and by the way, no one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants can enter the assembly, Lord. Not even ten generations deep. In other words, if you get your girlfriend pregnant, that child, not welcomed by God, and ten great-grandchildren later, still not welcomed by God. <laughs> what? I was born in 1976. In my lifetime, I have heard a youth pastor use that verse to compel teenagers to avoid premarital sexual relationships. And his logic was, if you mess up and get somebody pregnant, that kid will never be welcome in heaven. Nor the grandkid, nor the grandkid, nor the grandkid. And then those people left. And people said, oh, see, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them. And that image should be rejected because that is just hermeneutical nonsense. Watch, watch what else. He, he, while Moses is on a roll, he may as well just start excluding more people. Watch what he says. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the ten, not even ten generations deep. Nope. Nope. Moabites out. Ammonites out. Children born out of wedlock out. Eunuchs out. First three verses of Deuteronomy 23 has more fences than Jesus' entire ministry. And Jesus' presence itself confronts this. If you check Jesus' genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. <laughs> right? And there were certain questions around the circumstances revolving around his birth, right, right, right. So there's a rule. And the rule is eunuchs aren't allowed and foreigners aren't allowed. Acts chapter 8, there's a foreigner eunuch going, can I be allowed? <laughs> can you see where the tension in the story is? Philip has to decide, do I want to be right about Deuteronomy 23 or do I want to fulfill scripture by treating this guy as I would want to be treated? And that's two different things. 
to be right. If you don't hear me say nothing else, Jesus called his followers never to be right about one verse in the Bible, but rather to fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Which leads to this question. Why Isaiah then? Well, on the same scroll that this guy would have been holding, it says this. Let, this is Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. Can you see why a foreigner eunuch would be compelled by this message? A foreigner, Isaiah says, I know the rules say foreigner eunuchs aren't welcome, but if a foreigner eunuch wants in on what God's doing, then God is not going to exclude them. That, in that day, would have been revolutionary good news. Now watch what happens. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to keep his servants, uh, to keep to be his servants, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their offerings and sacrifices will, in fact, be accepted. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Imagine the QA at that one. What about Moabites? Yep. Ammonites? Yep. Sidonites? Yep, all. I, I can read Hebrew sort of, and the, the word translated all there is all. <laughs> this has been very confronting. <laughs> the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those. Are. In, in other words, if you don't hear anything else I ever say, tune in right now. Here it is, ready? Followers of Jesus are never, ever meant to read the Bible statically. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Is there a verse that says no eunuchs are welcome? Yes. A later revelation of God's like, I think God will accept eunuchs if they want it. Jesus in Matthew 19 said, actually, some people are born eunuchs because of God. In Acts 8... The guy that was so profoundly affected by Christ goes, actually, I can't find a reason you can't be baptized. I know there's a rule, but I'm going to do something more profound than being right about the rules. Because I believe God loves people more than the rules. And I'm going to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. This is where the church is going. Fully devoted followers of Jesus, Christ communities, are called to be fulfillers of scripture. Not people who are correct and pedantic about one single rule. This thing, next slide, has two characters. There's a eunuch, he's a God-fearer, but he would have been disqualified despite his desire to be a part. And there was a clear rule to do it. Then you have Philip, who was one of the original 12. He was from a devoutly orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences until he met Christ. And his meeting of Christ changed the way he saw the whole world. Oh, and by the way, this has an amazing amount of fruit to it. Today... 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christ followers. 65%. That's two th roughly two-thirds. Right? Ethiopian Christians are not, are they, they're, they're indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia, right? The Ethiopian church finds its beginnings in this eunuch. In other words, 
you never know where being brave enough to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about one rule you can find, you never know the long-lasting impacts that two-thirds of a nation today are Christ followers because of Philip's bravery to do the right thing. There are 613 rules in the Bible. You can find one to disqualify any person. We are not called to do that. We are called to fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. By the way, this is an entire book about being surprised, next slide, by how generous God is with people who are thirsty. An entire book about God doing things that weren't in the rules. Like, remember there's this one time? It says the Holy Spirit filled all the Gentiles. And it says that the religious leaders are like, hey, Peter, explain yourself, bro. God doesn't fill Gentiles. And remember Peter said, he said, I know. Funny enough, I agree with you. I do. That's what I was taught my whole life too. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with what God's up to? Remember, they were doing this without any New Testament. That wasn't put together until 300 years later. They're just having to do it by what they were seeing God do. Right? Now, that is my best effort at explaining what happened. <laughs> now, let's spend a few minutes asking this question. What do we do with that? What's happening in me right now because of what happened? What does it mean to be a well-based ministry instead of a fence-based one? Like if I was to say... Does Port City Christian Church want to be a well-based place or a fence-based place? Everything inside of us goes, well, of course. Like nobody would go, no, we need to make it so much harder to be a part. No one would do that. But if we don't have language around what that looks like, then it can get very frustrating. So let's put some language around this. Ne next slide. I would say that Jesus never asks, are you worthy? Jesus asks, are you thirsty? Those are two different things. The world Jesus stepped into asked, are you worthy? Jesus tried to change that to, are you thirsty? From, are you keeping all the rules, to, do you want to be a part? Those are two different things. Here's, Jesus had this profound trust. It's one thing to trust God with ourself. It's a whole other thing to trust God with somebody else. And what Jesus said is, if you want it, if you're thirsty enough, I can trust the Holy Spirit to do all the convicting and all the changing that needs to happen in your life. But you just, all we need is for you to want it. And let's say it this way. A fence-based place is consumed with, are you worthy? A well-based place is obsessed with, are you thirsty? Let, let's say it this way. A fence-based place is obsessed with sinning less. We don't compromise on sin around here. We call sin what it is, and we tell people to stop sinning. Because if you tell people to stop sinning enough, they'll stop sinning as if that's effective. Look, is your life better by stopping sinning? Yes, it is. But fighting sin by forbidding sin is, and making people think about sin is like fighting a fire with a spark gun. You can't really do that, right? It's not effective. It's well-meaning, but it's not effective. A fence-based place says we need to sin less. A well-based place says we need to love more. And in loving more, sinning less will take care of itself. A, a fence-based place is obsessed with fixing everything. Hey, bring us your problem, and we're the masters of what's good and evil, and we'll help you fix your problem. 
A well-based place goes, it's not our place to fix your life. It's God's place. So what if we created a culture that was so shame-free that nothing had to be hidden? Like a fence-based place says, bring it here, we'll fix it. A well-based place says, actually, nothing needs to be hidden. A fence-based place says everything needs to be fixed. A well-based place says nothing needs to be hidden. And if nothing is hidden, then the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit does best. It seems like a Christ-centered community is supposed to be a thirsty community. It seems like it's all about desire and thirst. That when we lose our thirst, that's the problem. So let's put some language around that. So let's say it this way. A lack of thirst is a lack of teachability. This is when we lose our teachability. As a matter of fact, the root word for disciple in Hebrew and Greek is student, a teachable person, somebody who understands that on their best day, they haven't even scratched one one-thousandth of one percent of what God is. They, there's someone that goes, wait a minute, if I haven't thought of it, it can't be true. They've lost their teachability. Like, I would rather journey with a couple hundred curious, teachable people then I'd want to pastor a church of 5,000 unteachable Christians. 5,000 unteachable Christians sounds like hell to me. That would be horrible. That would be horrible. Let's say it this way. A lack of thirst is a lack of humility. It's when liberty is best expressed and experienced when it's submitted to the higher ethic of love. When we, when we use our liberty at the expense of love, essentially you have anarchy. Liberty is best expressed and experienced when it's submitted to the higher ethic of love. So in other words, a Christ-centered community is willing to prefer the other person over your own liberty to do certain things. Well, let's say it this way. A lack of thirst is a lack of responsibility. In the Genesis poem, but before sin even entered the world, um, the problem was that they got their meaning from taking responsibility for the world, and when the sin entered, they started blaming. Can you imagine, let's say it in the positive. A thirsty culture is a teachable culture, a humble culture, and a responsible culture. Can you imagine a place of Christ-centered believers who were teachable, humble, and responsible? That would be a place worth going to. You could call that anything. We call it church, but you could call that anything, and it would be compelling. What, what, what are you guys doing over there? Oh, we're saying our next yes with God, and we're teachable, humble, and responsible in the process. That would be a compelling sort of place. Let's, let's say it this way. A lack of thirst equals ambivalence. It's like, well, now that I'm in, how I live doesn't matter. It's all about going to heaven. No, it's not. Christianity is not an exercise in going to heaven. Christianity is an exercise of bringing heaven here. If your whole Christian walk is about going to heaven when you die, that is boring. Unless you're 107. If you're 107, you can wait to go to heaven when you die. Frankly, it's coming soon. But if you're not 107, that means you woke up today with infinite possibilities to bring heaven to our world. It, let, let's state this in the positive. In other words, a thirsty culture is a teachable culture, a humble culture, a responsible culture, and a culture passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world. So when people say, where's this thing going? This is where it's going. Ready? The church of Jesus Christ in the next move is moving fully away from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm. What does that mean? It means we're going to focus less on sinning less and more on loving more. We're going to focus less on fixing everything and more on creating a culture where nothing has to be hidden and let God do it. 
We're going to focus less on worth and more on thirst. We're going to be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world. That would be a church worth going to, right? Let's even put some more language around this. Next slide. The overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. By Acts 15, they had dumbed it down to four. Meat sacrificed to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. In less than a decade, they had moved from 613 to four with the goal of getting it to two. That is a really good effort. Maybe let's say it this way. Next slide. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? I think that's a question we need to wrestle with. It doesn't matter where the fences are if we're heading towards the middle anyway. That doesn't matter. Because some fences are important for a civilized society. I'll give you one we should keep. Definitely keep this fence. Ready? Don't kill each other. It's a really good one. Right? But here's the problem with that, right? I bet that no one in here killed anybody this week. I would also bet that the reason you didn't kill someone is not because the Bible says don't kill. It's because you're not a killer, right? If you need the Bible to tell you not to kill, you might have missed the point of the whole thing, right? Here's another good fence. Don't take each other's things. Good one. Should keep it. But I bet nobody in here stole anything this week. I also bet the reason you didn't steal something is not because the Bible says don't steal. It's because you're not a thief. Right? Here's another good one. We should keep this one. Don't sleep with each other's spouses. Right? Swapping wives around doesn't really work very well. Right? Absolutely true. And I would bet it's highly unlikely that anybody in here right now is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse. Right? And if, if that's you and your heart's beating real fast right now and you're playing, please don't go prophetic. Just change your life. Don't tell me about it. Just stop doing that. Right? But I would also bet... That the reason you're not sleeping with someone else's spouse is not because the Bible says don't do it. You probably haven't even considered that. It's, it's more, I don't want to bring destruction to the people I love. Like, if, if you don't understand what I'm saying right now, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take your spouse to lunch after this. I'd like you to look at them right in the eye and say this to them. Sweetie. I love you with all my heart. I really do. But the only reason I'm not sleeping with everybody else is because the Bible forbids it. See how that works. See how you go with that, right? There's, there's a more profound way to live. If you're gravitating to the center, it doesn't matter where the fences are. Let, let, let's say it this way. Are we more focused on direction or distance? A fence-based ministry is obsessed with distance. Have you jumped over the fences to be in? That's a fence-based ministry. A well-based ministry says, actually, we're concerned with the direction of someone's shoulders. And if their shoulders are facing to the well, we are here to facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes, regardless of how small that yes might be. The question is not distance, it's direction. Let me illustrate this with a story. I was asked to do a volunteer's night at a big church. So everybody at this meeting was supposedly on a team. It was enormous. 
part of the night was they had a minute to win it segment where you told your God story in less than 60 seconds. So they had a security guy on a stopwatch. You got up and you said what you saw God do, and then, and then everybody cheered. And it, Because the stories and testimonies motivate people to say, this, this matters, right? And I was loving the stories. I had to preach after this. I'd rather hear the stories, right? I was loving this. The last guy, last guy to say something before I got up, he got up, and here's what he said. Hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. Right? Because if you want to kill a party, right? And I thought, man, this guy waited to the last person to get up and tell us we're all dumb and believe in fairy tales and do all the things that that can happen with, right? So I had already decided when he was done, I was going to get up and just honor him and love him and tell him how much we celebrate him because you do better peacemaking and de-escalating things than arguing, correct? So, so he gets up, but then he turned it. He said, I'm an atheist, absolutely an atheist today. He said, but I'm a lonely atheist. He said, and a friend of mine told me that your church didn't care whether I believed in God or not to let me belong to your thing. And true to it, you didn't. Nobody here minded that I was an atheist. You were just friendly and lovely. By the second week, you asked me to be on your host and hostess team. And I said yes. My job since week three has been to stand on the front door on Sunday and be nice to people. Show them where to go. Tell women where the bathroom is. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. I thought, this is amazing. I'm loving this. He said, and because of your kindness, my story is this. Tonight, I'm stepping back and considering God might be real. Well, the place. Exactly. Something inside you goes, yeah, that's good, right? A well-based place can celebrate and facilitate a yes that small. Because he could see the shoulders heading towards the well. A fence-based place can't do that. A fence-based place would go, yeah, but what if he died in a donkey exit? Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. His shoulders are facing the right direction, and he just said his next yes. What else would God expect from him? God's nudging him to consider God might be real. We don't know his story about how he became an atheist. We don't know any of those things, right? But we can surely facilitate and celebrate that guy's next yes. And a well-based place can absolutely do that. When he said that, the entire room gave him a standing ovation. It was awesome. It was awesome. Let, let's say it this way. Fences matter less when we're heading to the center. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build deeper wells instead of higher fences? What if we did that? What if we invoke thirst and life and provision and prosperity and abundance and hunger? What if we were teachable and humble and responsible and passionate about our world? Where's the church going? That's where it's going. It's going to a focus of loving more instead of sinning less. Of nothing needs to be hidden instead of everything needs to be fixed. It's going to a, a paradigm of are you thirsty? Do you want it? Instead of are you worthy? Isaiah was trying this thousands of years ago. He's like, I know the worth question is foreigner eunuchs aren't worthy. But what if God's asking a better question? If they want it, they can have it. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. Maybe we could, maybe we could say it this way. We don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. Or if fences make it more difficult to get to the well, 
then they miss the point. A fence that's set up as a hurdle to the well is missing a point. The fence that caroms us to the well, that's what it's all about. See, every year, the Jews celebrate a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, don't, don't be scared about that. It's, it's, it's not as weird as it seems. Let me, um, let, let me explain it in the most elementary way possible. Every year for seven days, every Jew everywhere chooses to live outside in a tent for seven days. And I know that's strange, but here's why they do it. The reason they do it is to remind them that if God had not interjected himself into their story, they would still be homeless refugee slaves. And they give a testimony. It sounds like this. My father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave, and if God had not interjected himself into that story, we would still be homeless refugee slaves. So for seven days a year, they live in tents to remind themselves where they would be had God not interjected himself into their story. And here's what they say. If we ever lose sight of where we would be if God had not interjected himself into our story, then we'll lose sight of our responsibility in their story. It's a beautiful thing. So one year, everybody's living outside in tents. And Jesus stands on the temple steps, the most fence-based thing ever. And here's what he says. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood on this and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Here, in other words, here's what he did. He said, the fullness of God that you've been taught your whole life is relegated to the inside chamber of that building, and it's only available to a few people. I'm changing the rules. From this day forward, the Holy Spirit is available to anybody. Now, what's the question? What must I do to have it? And Jesus says, want it. All you got to do is want it. Can you imagine the Q&A at that one? You imagine if Jesus finished that and said, any questions? Imagine that. Uh, what about eunuchs? Yep, they're welcome. Uh, Moabites? Yep, they're, they're, they're welcome. Uh, Ammonites? Yep. Sidonites? Yep. Children born out of wedlock? Yep. Yep, they're, they're welcome. We could go through all 613 worth questions, or we can agree together to change the entire paradigm to are you thirsty? Because as a Christ-centered community of people, we are never called to be right about one verse. We are called to fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto us. What's that mean for us? It means we're not concerned with are you worthy. We're concerned with are you thirsty. And we'll trust God with the rest. We're not obsessed with sinning less. We're obsessed with loving more. We're not obsessed with fixing everything. We're obsessed with creative culture. Nothing has to be hidden. We're teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world. We're more focused on direction of your shoulders instead of your distance from the well. That, we are here. What, why does Port City Christian Church exist here? We exist to facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes towards the well, no matter how small that might seem. We are here to be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about our world. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. Let's wrestle for a second. 
When's the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? Like, when's the last time you saw God do something and it didn't fit the rules? And you're like, oh, man, I didn't think God could do that. And I would say, if we're not seeing that, it's not because God stopped. It's because we stopped paying attention. Let's say it this way. Have I honored a right or wrong, in and out, clean, unclean paradigm over a hungry, thirsty one? If you are, you're already behind. Am I blaming or am I taking responsibility for where I am? Let's say it this way. Next slide. Am I teachable? Do I realize that on my best day, I haven't scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is? And, and, and I'm just, I've got an eternity of learning here. Or, or let's say it the other way. Am I flexible? Like if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I? So the question I really want us to wrestle with, and I want it to stick, is this. At Port City Christian Church, are we going to build deeper wells or higher fences? Because really, after I leave, the choice is yours. The choice has been made by your leaders, but ultimately gets applied by people sitting there. What, what, what would we do if an atheist came and said, I'm an atheist, I don't want to be unauthentic, but I'm lonely. Can I belong here without believing in God? Could we not honor the direction of that man's shoulders? Without pushing him, without... We could just pay attention. And when God gets in the middle of it, we just facilitate and celebrate that person's next yes. Now, if you've been journeying with God for 30 years and you're going to consider God might be real, I would suggest your shoulders are facing in the wrong direction. And we need to turn those shoulders around. That's called repentance. But when somebody's facing the right direction, no matter how far they are from the well, we're here to facilitate and celebrate their next yes. So, my brothers and sisters, hope Jesus got bigger. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. Scripture's got bigger, not smaller. May we be brave enough to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about one verse. You never know where the fruit of that might lead. May we be thirsty, consumed with teachability, humility, responsibility, and passion for our world. May we focus more on thirst and less on work. May we focus more on love instead of sin. May we focus more on don't hide anything instead of fix everything. May we be consumed with direction, not distance. And may we, more than anything, build deeper wells instead of higher fences. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Come on, how about today we just stand and for one last song just worship our living God. Wow. so hard to see it took me so long to believe it that you choose someone like me to carry your victory